Have you heard of Olivia, the travel company for lesbians and LGBTQ plus women? You know what they say. Life is short and the world is wide. And when you're a lesbian or LGBTQ plus woman, you want to be able to go on an adventure, have some fun, and be your unique self. Olivia Travel creates full takeovers of their cruise, resort, riverboat, and adventure vacations so you can zipline or scuba dive knowing you're with your own community. Discover Olivia for yourself at Olivia.com or through the link in our show notes. Save $100 on your next Olivia booking with promo code CRUISING. Had to be at least 100 rooms or something. I don't know. Well, maybe not that large, but, you know, a number of rooms. It wasn't a small place. Yeah. It was 2009, and Beth Lemke was headed to a 40th birthday celebration for her good friend, Melinda. She was gathering everybody um, at a hotel in San Francisco. It's called the Carriage Inn. I showed up on my own and um, made my way to her room and, um, you know, just given a room number. She had decided on this hotel for whatever reason and booked the room, and that's the room they gave her. So I go to the room number, and I'm noticing as I'm walking along, like, wow, these rooms are named after people like Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and there was probably Herb Kane and, you know, other famous people from uh, the Bay Area, San Francisco area. Um, and then when I got to the room, I saw that the nameplate on the door was Mona Sargent. Now Beth happens to have a great aunt named Mona, who'd passed away back in 2001. But didn't immediately strike me as being my Aunt Mona because she's been married a few times and she wasn't going by her um, family or her maiden name. But it struck a bit. I was like, that name sounds familiar. So I enter the room and pretty much the first thing I saw was on the desk was this typewriter. And in the typewriter was, you know, a piece of paper. Somebody had typed on it. And what it was was the like a a paragraph. It was meant to look like somebody was writing the person that the room was named after their bio. So I start reading this and it started out saying something like, you know, um, Mona Sargent had this amazing club that catered to the lesbian community of San Francisco. And I was like, what? Oh. So it all started to click. Beth knew that her great-aunt Mona had owned clubs in San Francisco. She also knew that Mona had gone through a handful of husbands and a handful of different last names. And then I saw the the illustration. So every room has this hand-drawn illustration of the person. And so Mona's um, was an illustration that was taken from a photo of her. She was in this, like, Jane Tarzan outfit, um, like loincloth outfit, some sort of Halloween fundraiser event. This woman on the wall of the hotel room was definitely Aunt Mona. It was one of those serendipity that I, didn't, I don't even know if serendipity is the right, is strong enough word because it was such a surprise and shock. I was just like, suddenly, you know, who cares about Melinda? I just wanted to know all about, you know, the room, Mona, this hotel, like what's the deal? This was the first Beth had ever heard of Mona being an important historical figure or being connected to the queer community in any way. I knew she'd owned something, a club, or that she'd been in that business, but my family didn't 
you know, didn't share details or, and, and honestly, I'm not even sure how much they knew, you know, after I've spoken to some older family members, um, cause she was very private about stuff and she was just autonomous, you know, it wasn't, I don't think she was trying to keep things from people. It just goes back to the fact that that side of the family just didn't get together often. There just wasn't a lot of communication in the first place. And certainly Aunt Mona was not helping that because she was off, you know, doing her own thing. Obviously, Beth had a lot to learn about her aunt. I had no idea. No idea that she would be that well-known or well-regarded to have a hotel room named after her and be in the same category or whatever as Ferlinghetti or Kane or some of the other famous people in the area. It was like bittersweet because then I'm thinking, oh gosh, you know, I could have asked her so many more questions. This is Cruising, a podcast about the last lesbian bars in the U.S. My name is Sarah Gabrielli, and I'm traveling to each one of them with my two friends and chosen family. This episode, we're taking you back in time to Mona's. In our last episode, you met Ricky Stryker, owner of Mods, a quintessential San Francisco lesbian bar that was open from 1966 to 1989. And you heard about Ricky's journey to San Francisco in 1945 with her friend Reba Hudson. We met at some all-night party at Malibu, Mm -hmm. and she said, you mean you've never come to San Francisco? And I said, no, and she said, you've got to. We got here Easter Sunday morning, it was raining, and and, uh, never left. In the years between Ricky's arrival in San Francisco and the opening of Mods in 1966, Ricky immersed herself in the San Francisco lesbian nightlife scene. Well, in those days, all of the the women's bars were uh, on Broadway Mm -hmm. in North Beach. Mm -hmm. There was Mona's, Chi-Chi's, the Candlelight. Mm-hmm. Those three, and they were all women's bars, and that mm-hmm. was the the total scene here in San Francisco for mm-hmm. women. See, Ricky didn't magically wake up one day with the skills and knowledge to open her own highly successful lesbian bar. She learned from the bars that came before hers and from those that ran them, most notably a woman named Mona, whom Ricky mentions in a 1992 oral history interview. But in 1933, Mona who was a young girl who wanted to be an artist but simply wasn't, didn't have the skills of artistry mm-hmm. in her little bag of tricks. Therefore, she decided that she would open a, a little bar down there, and it was a little beer and wine joint. And she never intended it to be a lesbian hangout. All she did was she opened it for her friends. Somehow or another, women started to go to it, and it turned out mm-hmm. there she was with... I don't know, I would assume the first lesbian bar in San Francisco, and probably one of the very few anywhere on earth. Today, Mona's is considered by many to be the first documented lesbian bar in the United States. It is certainly the first lesbian bar to open after Prohibition is repealed. Prohibition was lifted in 1933. Mm -hmm. So until 1933, there were no bars per se. Mm -hmm. There was uh, after-hour clubs and all 
that speakeasies and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. While there were lesbian-centric speakeasies and underground spaces that came before Mona's, it's probably safe to consider Mona's the first public modern lesbian bar. Although, as Ricky mentioned, Mona didn't intentionally set out to open a lesbian bar. Something to know about Mona is that she's always, at least publicly, maintained her straight identity. Then they'd say, somebody'd say, well, are you a, a lesbian? And I think, well, now why do they ask me that? This is Mona. It's strange because could, you be, could a, a, a gay person be straight? Some of them have tried. You're what you are. I can't be gay because I'm not. And But what's that got to do with friendship and, and all that? The identity that Mona does strongly embrace is that of a bohemian, which, especially back then, meant she was an ally. The thing, the slogan or whatever you call for bohemians was, we are not offended at how the other fellow lives. She's speaking here on another set of tapes, also recorded in 1992, by the same historian who interviewed Ricky, Nan Alamilla Boyd. Mona, can we focus a little bit on um, some of the lesbian history stuff? Just that we There are two other women also present for Mona's interview. Reba Hudson, Ricky's old friend who initially moved with her to San Francisco, and Ricky Stryker herself, sporadically snapping pictures of Mona and her archives. Look right about over here. Oh, all right. Sort of look like she is. I so wish I knew why and how these four iconic women got together on this day. But we haven't been able to reach Nan, the only one of them still living. I have to imagine that Ricky and Reba, already knowing Mona, wanted to be around to make her feel comfortable and to listen to her stories. Mona, you have many, many admirers. A friend of mine In the years since Beth's discovery, she's tried to learn as much as she can about her Aunt Mona. But unfortunately, there are few relatives left that really knew her. Well, they grew up in in Santa Rosa in that vicinity. This is Beth's Uncle Clay, who's Mona's nephew. Clay's dad was Mona's oldest brother. My grandfather, my dad's dad, passed away I think he was 39 years old from cancer. And my dad at the time was 11. And uh, he was the oldest child. And my, my grandmother and grandfather had four children. My dad and his brother, Vic, and his sister, Mona, and his sister, Sybil. Mona was the third child, around seven or eight when her dad died. My grandmother had no means of support other than to do what work she could for for neighbors and for people. And my dad went to board with a with a dairyman. Uh, the family, you know, was split up early because of, well, out of necessity. My grandmother, couldn't, she couldn't support four children. This explains a lot of why Beth would never have learned about her aunt's life until well into adulthood. Mona's siblings, Beth's extended family, were separated from an early age. That kind of thing can certainly affect uh, family relationships. And I think that's part of what, what made my dad and, and uh, Mona, at least, not really close. Part of that's due to the fact that they were really young, and he was only 11, and he was the oldest when my grandfather died. So from that time on, you know, they didn't really grow up together. They grew up together till my dad was 11 and then was gone. 
We don't really know when Mona herself left home or where she went as a kid. In that 1992 interview, she mentions living with her grandmother and talks about moving around a lot, always meeting new people. I had always, from moving as a kid from one house to the other, I, fortunately, first I didn't, I was the one kid didn't adjust at first and hid in the closet a couple of days, but when I got over that, then I liked people because I was meeting somebody different all the time, and it was kind of natural with me. At this point, she would have been going by Mona Nystrom, though, as I've mentioned, this will change a few times over the years. I'll let her break it down for you. My maiden name was Nystrom. Now they call it Nystrom. Later became the glad hand. N-Y-S-T-R-O-M. Here, Ricky is interjecting with the last name of Mona's first husband, Gladham, and Mona kind of ignores her because she doesn't count this marriage. I never Was told it? my family, never told anybody. I ran away with this kid and his folks. He was a rich kid. His folks wanted him to go on to college, and they sent him away to college, and then he, he died a drunkard. And, but uh, that name I don't count. Okay. Then I married Sergeant. Mm-hmm. S-A-R-G-E-N-T, and then I married Burke, B-U-R-K-E, uh-huh. and now I'm Hood. I'm on the Hood. Okay. One of the Hoods. Of John Hood, her husband at the time of the 1992 interview and through the end of her life. Now here's the one. Something else to know about this interview is that Mona is looking through boxes of her old photographs, letters, and newspaper clippings, which keeps distracting her from the questions. Do you want to put, put these, these away? Put this away. That voice is Nan, the historian and interviewer. She does a lot of keeping Mona on track. Just that we can just focus for a few minutes and get some of that on tape. How does that sound? Whatever you want to do, hon. Mona was in her late teens when she moved to San Francisco seeking work. This would have been in the mid to late 1920s. And that's when I lived in 19 in the monkey block. The monkey block was a sort of bohemian compound where Mona first found community in San Francisco. Wasn't monkey a contraction of Montgomery? That's it. it. The nickname is monkey block, right. but the, it's the Montgomery block building. Uh-huh. Because it was on Montgomery. Right. And then, and then and generally Wood. speaking, uh, through the years, it, it came to mean that, that particular section. They had butcher shops down below and all kind of things. Yeah. And an opening, what do you call that technically in the middle, the big opening like there? A big courtyard. Yeah. And, uh, but you went up the steps. You didn't go down in. That right. was the back because it was upstairs where you lived. And that back part was the backyard to the butcher shops and the stores and things. You went up these steps into the and it was around like this so it wasn't a block like cars drove no. on it it was like a mall no, the original, I don't know. it was no. a building originally one but building one building is all oh, but it was but they had all these stores in below in the one building it sounds like the monkey block had a college dormitory feel to it young artists and bohemians all living in small rooms with a hot plate most likely a twin bed maybe a chair and a desk and shared bathrooms. Across the front was the girls' toilets. Mm-hmm. Across the back was the boys' toilets. And you'd be about halfway here or closer there, and you wanted to get somebody over there. You didn't come all the way up and go through the girls' toilet or the front part to get there. You just took your shortcut, mm-hmm. and you opened the door of the men's toilet, and yelled, coming through, and ran right through. 
the monkey block became a hugely important part of San Francisco history, attracting many famous artists, writers, and activists with its cheap rent and ideal location. There's Mark Twain, Robert Louis Stevenson, and Emma Goldman, just to name a few of the monkey block's more prominent residents. It was an attractive community to be part of. You'd open your window and say... Hey, Joe, have you got, I'm making some stew. Have you got an extra potato? And over your transom, somebody would come running and throw a couple of potatoes. There was always some things like that helping each other. Lots of happy memories from the monkey block. We'd share things and we'd be broke. And, I and, went uh, to one or two parties there when I first came to San Francisco. Boy, I tell you, there was some great... Oh, yeah. When anybody had a birthday or anything important was, we locked the front door. We had our own crowd in there, locked the front door, and there was musicians also practicing right. there. Moved the piano out and danced up and around the hall. And other people would hear the noise and come up and look in. We'd go, <laughs> Oh, it was fun. That was the fun day. Nobody felt bad about having a little money because everybody shared. Everybody was broke. But Mona always figured out ways to make a little money and get by. I'd go out to the couple blocks up, somebody be with me, go to the streetcar line, and I'd, I always looked like a kid anyway. Like, Mister, I lost my five-cent piece and I have to get home to my mother. Uh, do you take the bus here every day? I could beat you tomorrow and pay you back. Oh, that's all right. Little girl, you give me a dime. And I think a dime buys an egg sandwich. <laughs> then I'd go to the next, uh, wait till he got on that, or go to down to the next corner and say the same thing. And the man, they'd always, they'd never just give you a nickel. They'd most always give you a dime. Mona's partner in crime at the time was a girl named Helene. Well, you and Helene known each other for a long time. Since we were 17. So who's Helene? Is she a lesbian? Huh? No, uh-uh, no. Is she a friend of yours? She was the hat check girl at Mona's. Oh. No, she was never, she didn't, she didn't care who was a lesbian. She was like me, they were all her friends. Yeah. But long before they were both able to work in Mona's bars... Helene and I would go down, and uh, we'd go down near some nice fancy hotel... And we'd go in and look it over and see where the restrooms were up on the, usually in the mezzanine top, and look the whole thing over and talk to the guy in there. And then we'd come out and uh, we'd wait. And there's always men looking for girls. Meaning sex workers. We'd say, yeah, 100 bucks. Come on, I'll take 100 bucks. You got 50 bucks or 100 bucks. The men would say something. We'd say, oh, I don't, oh, I don't know. Uh, well, oh, all right. If you give me some money, I'll go in here. Now, but we'll go in first and we'll get the room. Wait right here. And so we'd go in and say, hi, we're going up the restroom. We'd go up the desk first, you know, and talk about it and say, we're going to. So the guy's looking in and see us go to the desk. Then we take the elevator and go up. And we had already told the guy at the desk we were going to the restroom. We'd go up a few minutes and we'd come down and come out and say, we'd look at the numbers, how they went. We'd say, it's on the third floor numbers such and such, and uh, wait here because we don't want him to see us go in again, and uh, go on up. The door is unlocked. The guys would go up and we'd run like hell. We had the money in our hand. We'd run like hell. <laughs> well, I'll bet Helene put you up to that. Sometimes Mona and Helene would get real jobs, but they'd never last long. We'd get a job and work a couple of weeks and buy a bathing suit or a new coat or something, and then that was it. 
They didn't have social security numbers anyway to track you down. Get a job saying my name's Alice Watts or something, anything. I was usually Ramona Arno <laughs> because you could you'd go and open up a charge account. As soon as you had a job, two or three weeks, they used to call that dollar down dollar when they get you. And I, they'd know that I was working this place by that name. And I'd get a coat and a nice little dress and a nice little outfit and work a couple of more weeks and then think the hell of that. <laughs> Quit going the other end of town. <laughs> we had every angle. But nowadays you couldn't do that. It isn't, uh, it's too dangerous. Everything you do now is too dangerous. Back in the 1930s, Mona was able to get by through these various schemes and odd jobs and with the support of her bohemian community, at least through her early 20s. And then Mona met Jim Sargent at a party in Fresno. And, and he followed me all around the party, followed me and followed me. I thought, I don't want to know him. I wasn't interested at all. He followed me till he got me. Mona's not just talking about Jim following her around the party. I came back to San Francisco, and then he followed me, and he knew people there that I knew, and uh, took me, said his divorce wasn't final, and he wanted to take me to Vallejo to be at, at his house until it was final. And finally, I thought, oh, what the hell? Then we were married. It wouldn't be long before Prohibition was repealed in 1933, and Mona and Jim would open their first club together. A man knew Jim and knew me, and he knew that I knew, from living in the monkey block, all kinds of kids and artists and writers, mostly, that were struggling there. And he said, Mona knows everybody, and you played football. Jim says, we'll call it Jim Sargent's. He said, no, you go play football. We're calling it Mona's. (laughs) Mona took about $500, which was like about $5,000 now, though. And about $12,000 today in 2024. And said, I'll loan you any money that you need. He just thought he had money and it would be cute to, since things were legal, to, he liked me. He thought I was cute. They called me the kid. Everybody was older than me. I was about 23, but going on about 18 or something. And, <laughs> I like yeah. the rest of us. <laughs> Makes sense, right. <laughs> and, Nothing uh, has changed. <laughs> so in 1933, Mona became the face of the first of a string of nightclubs. This first one was just called Mona's, and it was located at 451 Union Street on the southwestern slope of Telegraph Hill. It was always packed because it was new. Things were just legal that year, 1933. This was the year Prohibition ended, right? Yes, this was your first place. I opened right away. In 1933, it was the Depression days, Mm -hmm. but everybody had money to go. In Depression days, people will get their hair fixed and they'll go drink. They'll do things because they think, what the hell else have I got? That's right. Who knows? Prohibition was repealed on December 5th, 1933, which meant the responsibility of regulating the sale of liquor went back to the states. At this point, the manufacture, transport, and sale of alcohol had been banned in the U.S. for nearly 15 years. So as you can probably imagine, applications for liquor licenses immediately began flooding the state capital, Mona's among them. But Mona didn't wait around for her license to arrive. When we opened up, it wasn't really legal until a Monday or something. We opened on a Saturday. And I'll never forget, he came in and I said, uh, he said, where's your license? I said, she was supposed to be here. It didn't arrive, but it's in the mail. It'll be here. So, sure enough, Monday we got it and put it up. 
But he says, you're not supposed to do that. I said, well, I thought it would be here. And I had all plans and were opened. And he said, okay, take it easy or something. Because they knew me. And that was the whole idea of Mona being the face of the club. She knew so many people and had so many connections. She would get away with things others couldn't. And she could really draw a crowd. I had a free free food for uh, from 5.30 to 7, I think, or something like that, at first. And then, uh, I don't know, it got too crowded and we cut that out. But we'd have a big bowl of Italian, like big bowl of soup and French bread and butter. That was it. That was for all my artist friends and things to come in because I had gone through that but appreciated that myself. This first place wasn't really around long enough to become a lesbian hotspot, although a photo taken there in September of 1934 shows large murals of naked women covering the walls, which isn't all too surprising given the progressive, bohemian artist crowd the bar attracted. After about two years, though, Mona opened a second bar known as Mona's Barrel House. I was asked to move from the first location by my neighbors because the place was too small. So I moved to Columbus Avenue. This is one of many times Mona reads aloud during the interview. Here she is quoting from something she'd previously written about the history of her bars. She describes the barrel house on Columbus Avenue. It had a long bar and a few booths. And when they first moved in, Mona says the space hadn't been used in years. She and her then-husband, Jim, put in large barrels, presumably to serve as high-top tables. And they covered the floor in sawdust, which was a common practice in bars back then because the sawdust absorbed spills and odors and could easily be swept up at the end of the night. According to Mona, the bar was crowded every night, but it wasn't a nightclub-type scene with dancing and loud music. Just a hangout for artists and writers. I never wanted a nightclub with dancing and so forth. I hated nightclubs. (laughs) Mona's Barrel House is where Mona first began to attract lesbian clientele. With the Bohemians, they found people that understood them and didn't say, oh, get out of here, you goddamn les, or something. I didn't know about lesbians. I had heard they were called lady lovers. I had heard, and I paid no attention. Until she did. Girls came in, and they were nice, and then I was nice to them, and then one of them, when they got to play with me, one of them cried, and she told me about herself and said her folks shut the door in her face. And I said, well, you need a job. You could be waitress, I think, we're that busy. And I, it just started in that way, and I got used to them, and I thought, what the hell, is, what's this with people calling fruit or queer or something? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't understand because I knew them as, as person. So when did you program. start having, um, having male impersonators as uh, entertainment? Was that just at the... I guess it started out, they'd get up and sing down in the basement. So it started in the basement Second place. place. How did you get them from waitressing, which is obviously how you hired them? They'd get up and sing. Anybody could get up and sing at one too. And so the waitresses start getting up and singing, and we discovered they could sing, and I said, you're a singing waitress. Mona insists she never planned any of this. The singing waitstaff, the drag kings, or the lesbian hangout spot. She says over and over again, it all just happened. It was never your intention to run a gay club, was it, Mona? No. 
Nope. It just sort of I didn't care. I was minded to have it just it called me. characters. Just all of the crowd having fun, and then I saw that it ended up one third gay, one third our regular crowd that was a bit of everything, and one third tourists. I did not was not a smart enough businesswoman to think, oh boy, I'll have gay people and I'll drop the crowd or this or that. It was just started for fun and uh, things just kind of <coughs> fell in because it was new and it was the first. It wasn't that I'm so clever. Whether or not Mona intended to create this type of a space, she certainly benefited from a business perspective. All of a sudden you looked around your club, which was a hodgepodge of everybody down, yeah. down on my street. And then all of a sudden there were fewer and fewer men and fewer and fewer straight people and you were getting... No, well, there was no. There was always tourists and always straight people around. There weren't just all gay people. Tourism in this context doesn't necessarily refer to out-of-towners. Rather, most of these tourists were straight San Francisco locals interested in rubbing shoulders with the gays and bohemians for a night. They'd see the name and somebody say, well, that Jesus, all the nutty bohemians in there. They call us the nutty bohemians. Mm-hmm. And I'd oh, God, so, oh, you got to come in there and see this, you know. Yeah, that was the part, that was where all the bohemians were. Yeah. So if you were interested in seeing the arty crowd. That's what they, yeah. To begin and then with. along with the arty crowd come the little tomboy girls. Mm-hmm. And then they get said, gee, look at that, you know. That's what people would come and see. And they'd say, uh, that's not really a girl. I said, yes, I did. One time, Kay. That's not really a girl. I said, people think it's a little, that she's a jockey or something. I said, probably is. And I said, no. I said, I'll tell you what. Now, take her in the back room. If you can prove to me, I'll give her five, $5 like hand or $20 bill or something. So I said, Kay, come here. I said, show him you haven't got one of those things. And I said, he doesn't think you're a girl. We're going in the back room. So we went in the back room. Kay took down her pants and said, I'm a girl. So okay, hon, and he handed her 20 bucks and said, no, I didn't mean any harm. I just had to know. Mona tells this story with such nonchalance, and maybe it wasn't a big deal to Kay. Maybe she was in on the whole thing and happy to make 20 bucks, which was a lot of money back then, worth nearly 500 today. But I have to imagine not everyone was pleased with this kind of tourism. And historian Lillian Faderman agrees. For the straight community, it was, you know, it was fun. It was exotic. It was uh, in a way that I think most of us would find very troubling today. And maybe lesbians found troubling in those days, too. But it was straight people looking at the queers. And I should say that queers in those days was not a term that the community chose for itself. It was a a hostile and exoticized kind of term. Have you heard of Olivia, the travel company for lesbians and LGBTQ plus women? You know what they say, life is better in flip-flops. And when you're a lesbian or LGBTQ plus woman, you want to be able to go on vacation, put your feet up and be your unique self. Olivia Travel creates full takeovers of their cruise resort, riverboat, and adventure vacations, so you can kiss who you want to kiss without a care in the world. You've never felt relaxation like this. Discover Olivia for yourself at olivia.com or through the link in our show notes and save $100 on your next Olivia booking when you use promo code CRUISING. 
Eventually, Mona's good fortune would run out when, after two years at the barrel house, she contracted tuberculosis around 1938. Bad luck soon came my way. Again, Mona reads something she had written about this time in her life. She was 30 years old and says that at first she didn't know what was wrong with her. She was always tired and would find herself needing to hold onto the bar just to remain standing. So she went to the doctor, who found tuberculosis in her abdomen and reproductive organs. Mona was in the hospital for three and a half weeks and then ordered to bed rest for the next 11 months. Many patients with TB at this time would have landed in a sanatorium. But fortunately, Mona had an aunt who was a nurse in Santa Rosa. So during this time, she took Mona into her home and cared for her. After a year spent recovering, Mona returned to San Francisco, where she discovered that her then-husband Jim, or in her words, The A.H. I was married to had not paid bills, and, <laughs> and my furs were missing. Not only had Jim basically run the club into the ground while Mona was away, he'd also been cheating on her. Uh, Sonia, he went out with little Sonia, remember Sonia? Yes. She turned out to be a little hooker, but she went out and got money from Jim, got on the bus and came to Santa Rosa to my aunt's, had my address because they'd all sent me little notes, and handed me some money, and I said, what's this for? She said, Jim gave it to me for sleeping with him. <laughs> I thought, oh my God. And then another girl gave me back one of my first. <laughs> Mona divorced Jim soon after all of this came to light, which was definitely for the best because, as Mona confesses in a shockingly casual manner, he was also physically abusive throughout their marriage. Well, he was a real son of a bitch, wasn't he? Oh, oh he was, and I was a battered <laughs> wife, but you didn't tell it those days. I was in the hospital once for three days, his mother, you've got to forgive him. He needs you. I said, no, my mother needs me you without you. You in the hospital for three days, wife. Your friends yeah. know that Mona had killed me. I know it. <laughs> I know it. Mona talks a fair amount about issues with her various male business partners. Not just Jim. These partners couldn't stand that I got all of the attention, and I realized it was a big mistake. They just, all of a sudden, they need you, they send for you, and when they get started, they don't want you around because they're nothing anymore because everything was me. And Herb Cain came in, and he'd write about me, but he wouldn't mention anything else. And the same way with Charlie Murray, he just mentioned Mona's and her 440 or something, and, and everybody that came, because they knew that, it, that the people were there before were nothing until I was there. Charlie Murray would be Mona's next business partner. Charlie already owned a club at 440 Broadway. What he wanted was to use Mona's name and bring in Mona's existing clientele. So they rebranded as Mona's 440 Club. Not that I'm so terrific. It's, I was there at the right time. To start, and I was young, and I liked everybody, and I really... And everybody liked And I did the people that worked for me. So how come the lesbian bar was the most popular bar on the Strip? Because I was the first, it was first legal, and that made it interesting for people from all over, and as I said, there weren't that many yet in Los Angeles. At Mona's 440 Club, straight tourism became even more popular. Stars would even come up to go to these places. Bob Hope was there... They said, I went there that, that night, and they said, he looked around and said, this is depressing. There was even a company called Gray Line Bus Tours that would drive the tourist crowds to places like Mona's and Finocchio's, another popular gay club known for its drag shows. 
So those bus tours offered uh, exotic San Francisco nightlife and what could be more exotic than places like Finocchio's uh, with, uh, quote, female impersonators, uh, glamorous uh, drag shows. This is historian Lillian Faderman again. Or Mona's also with glamorous drag shows, usually uh, male impersonators, quote unquote. Not only the shows, but the waiters would often be people assigned female at birth who dressed in masculine clothing. On stage at Mona's 440 Club, you could find a number of big-name performers. They had wonderful entertainers, including Beverly Shaw, later of the Club Laurel, uh, who was very Marlena Dietrich-esque. Uh, who would dress in um, her, her usual garb was a, uh, a tuxedo jacket and a bow tie and a skirt and high heels. <laughs> it also attracted uh, entertainers such as Gladys Bentley, the African-American singer. I don't want no man that I got to give my money to who got her start in New York in Harlem. But she was at Mona's in the 1940s frequently, uh, always dressed, uh, in her case, in a a tuxedo, a white tuxedo, uh, was her signature outfit. And uh, she was a, a huge draw in the lesbian community. The 440 Club is probably the most well-known of Mona's bars, but Mona herself wasn't actually all that involved with it. I never wanted a nightclub with dancing and so forth. I hated nightclubs. (laughs) I didn't care. I just took a flat wage every month out of the money because I was too sick anyway. I was still not supposed to be doing a lot of things. And as with all of Mona's business partners, things with Charlie Murray eventually went sour. So I just took money and... I went in one time and I heard him telling somebody, oh, she used to be a waitress here or something. See, he couldn't take it. I made another mistake. He couldn't take living in your shadow. Yeah. Mona continued collecting checks and leasing her name to the 440 Club until 1944 when she got another call from another man named Tom Marvelich asking her to buy into his club, The Paper Doll. Mona stayed with the paper doll for just about a year, and then in 1946, she married her third husband, Whitey Burke. In her papers, Mona describes Whitey as a merchant seaman and fun artist. His father was head of the art department of the New York Times in New York. He was from Greenwich Village. We were the same style, uh-huh. His, but we were both crazy. He insisted that I started painting seriously and write my poetry. I did and I do, but for my own amusement and amazement. (laughs) We know that Mona has always surrounded herself with artists, but it seems like Whitey is the one that really encourages her to follow her own artistic pursuits, writing and painting, which, according to Beth Lemke, would continue throughout her life. Most of the time my words seem to rhyme. I'm a poet and don't know it. My words show it. Rhyming words just pop out of the air from I don't know where. So there. (laughs) 
Mona even started art school while she was with Whitey. She studied painting and sculpting, and then, while Whitey was away at sea, she got a call about another bar. This one was on Broadway, right across the street from the old 440 Club. Some came along and they said, this place is for sale. <laughs> I said, I can do it. <laughs> what place That's was it? Mona's Candlelight. So she quit art school and jumped at this new business opportunity, but brought one of her art professors with her to decorate the new bar. I said something about, we're going to have candlelights around on the tables. He said, we'll call it Mona's Candlelight then. And uh, he, he didn't charge me anything. He fixed it all up for me and helped me. Mona reads an article from when she first opened one, the Candlelight Cafe. The mysterious woman named Mona has added excitement to San Francisco's nights for many years. Few have known what went on inside of Mona. Few know now. Perhaps no one will ever know. But as long as she lives, people will seek her out and try to lift the veil behind which she hides her heart. You can meet her any night at her new candlelight cafe. The cafe is, Mona says, a place where people from all walks of life can meet their old friends. Mona Sargent, owner hostess. This one says, the little Sergeant girl waitresses look like boys. Yeah. And the little girls who sing sweet songs look like boys. Yeah. And many of the little girl customers look like boys. <laughs> <laughs> that was you two. <laughs> it was all fun and games at Mona's Candlelight until Whitey returned from sea. And uh, when Whitey came back, I said, I got Mona's Candlelight. And I said, you're going to be the bartender. That was my mistake. <laughs> Mona alludes a few times to both her and Whitey having drinking problems. Because then the drinking and, you know, when he wouldn't quit and make plans with me and things. I don't know, things just happened and he didn't, I just didn't take care of business, neither did he. We were drinking and I thought nuts to it. And according to a short blurb published in the San Francisco Examiner on June 6, 1949, Whitey could also be violent. Mona beaten by mate, the headline reads. Mrs. Ramona Burke, 37, the Mona of Mona's Candlelight at 473 Broadway, was hospitalized last night after she was beaten by her husband, Francis Whitey Burke, 38. She required eight stitches about the face at Central Emergency Hospital. The altercation took place at the nightclub where Burke tends bar in view of about 30 patrons. The following day, another article in the San Francisco Examiner is published, along with a photo of a bandaged Mona and a San Francisco police officer. According to this article, after getting stitched up at the hospital, Mona was arrested for intoxication, quote, after she told police she was beaten by her husband. There is not mention of Whitey being arrested for his actions. But it makes sense that, around this time, Mona started questioning her own drinking habits. <laughs> and I thought, God, I have these hangovers that last forever. God, I don't know. And I don't remember. I was always with friends, so I was taken care of. But I thought, some of these days I'm going to wake up. I don't remember where I was. And I'll look over and say, who that? Beside me or something. And some old motel. And I thought, because I knew people that did that. And I thought, I don't want to end up that way. And just then I looked at the newspaper. I thought, oh, where am I going to read the paper? And there was a little thing and the little sign. See, something pointed to me. Read that. It said AA, just a few blocks from down from where we where we lived up there in the alleyway. Right. And uh, I went down. 
I answered all the questions, and she says, do you think you're alcoholic? I said, why no? I just have too much fun. I'm drinking too much. I'm not alcoholic. I don't crave drinks. She says, oh, that all alcoholics don't crave the drink. They just love to have a good time. And she said, uh, do I look like an alcoholic to you? And I said, well, certainly not. She said, well, my husband and I blew every job all the way from New York City <laughs> up to here. And she said, you are alcoholic. For about three months, I was real good because I was afraid I would insult people. And I was doing it for what other people might think. And one time I got mad at somebody and thought, bullshit, and I got real drunk. <laughs> It's not clear whether Mona divorces Whitey before she sells the Candlelight Club or after. Both happen around the same time, and Mona attributes both to her issues with alcohol. And then when I sobered up, I did it for me. Right. And you can only do it for yourself. Oh, sure. After I was sober for a while, I start writing poetry again, and I'd look up and think, God, the sky's pretty today, and they'd be the prettiest clouds, and I thought... I don't need that to get high. Even through sobriety and separation, Mona and Whitey remained friends. We never slept together or stuff like that. We saw each other once or twice a year, and we were always very close. But we had nothing but fun together. And this husband is so good, but he's no laughs. This husband, who she'd stay with through the end of her life, is John Hood. He's no fun. He's good, but he's no fun. He sits with his newspaper. And he goes, talks to me with his back turned walking down the hall. I went the other day oh, a while back and turned him around like that. And I said, learn to not walk down the hall with your back turned to people when they're talking to you. John was a quiet man, according to Mona's niece, Beth. I imagine being with him was peaceful for Mona, who'd always had such difficult relationships with men. But he's good, and it's a, I wouldn't marry someone I didn't care about. And uh, he's a, a good person, and he needed me, but mainly I think I married him because his little girl needed me. John also came with a family. He had three kids by the time Mona met him and was going through a messy divorce. The mother was a religious nut. We locked her kids out overnight when they lived a block from the panhandle where things are wrong, and, and uh, <coughs> let the oldest girl lock herself with her boyfriend in down in the room and, the, you know, and get pregnant and all that, and then you're going to go to hell and uh, all that stuff. So Mona kind of swooped in and started looking after John's youngest daughter, Barbara. And I lived, had an apartment on Pacific Avenue in an old mansion that was made over, and there was an apartment in the front. So I got him the apartment in the front. I said, bring Barbara to me. I told the social worker, bring her to me, and she can stay in my apartment. But I went to work at a, I was a hostess in some restaurant then, and uh, I had to go to work by four o'clock. And Barbara would come home from school, and then her father would be there, and she'd get her father's dinner and be with her father, and then he'd bring her down the hall to my apartment, and then when I came home, she was there in bed. As you can imagine, Barbara's mom was not too happy about this arrangement, to the point where Mona had to appear in court. I was subpoenaed there for his divorce, her attorney. Well, they made it look like I was some kind of a lesbian because I had the club. So uh, I pretend I didn't catch on. And uh, they said something about, well, where does she sleep? I said, certainly not on a Chesterfield. I wouldn't do that and make her sleep on the Chesterfield 
If you don't know, a Chesterfield is a kind of sofa. What Mona means is Barbara slept in bed with her. And I work. I'm not about sleeping with Chesterfield, and I'm not used to sleeping with kids. But it doesn't bother me that much if I'm being nice to a little girl. And, see, they were trying to make it look funny. But guess what? None of this even mattered because, in typical Mona fashion, she already knew the judge, so... They gave her to me. And then that's when I was taking care of her about a year later when his divorce was filed and everything, we married. And Barbara was happy. Mona and John married sometime roughly around 1950 and would eventually move to Santa Rosa about an hour north of San Francisco. It seems Mona spent the rest of her life as a sort of matriarch in John's family. Barbara's been married and her kids, she says, I'm her mother. I said, that isn't right. You have a mother. You may not enjoy her. She said, my mother should have thought, I said, but you should love her. She said, my mother should have thought of that years ago. You're my mother. So I said, well, I accept. And uh, she checks with me every week. And her kids call me grandmother, and they've got kids now. They call me Gigi for great-grandmother, and uh, I enjoy it. I haven't lived near them to be around them, but it's, I feel good inside. And yet, when they went to their weddings, when her kids all, grandmother, had me walk down the aisle that night, I thought, this isn't right. It should be their real grandmother. And I had a little guilt feeling. And when I said something to Barbara, she says, no, this is what they want. They, they know the other grandmother. They chose you. It's no surprise that Beth's family hasn't maintained contact with any of the hoods, especially considering how little any of them even knew about Mona herself. Fortunately, my mom has known Nancy Drew, and she's not particularly, um, you know, a go-getter. Because when I asked mom, okay, you know, Aunt Mona passed away. Let's go talk to John and get, you know, whatever her personal effects or, you know, maybe she's got diaries or I want to know this stuff. And, um, and nothing ever happened. And I don't know where anything is or if there is anything. John has since passed and we've thus far found it impossible to reach any of his kids, grandkids or great grandkids who seem to have been Mona's world in the last decades of her life. Something I find interesting about this whole story is that it was really important for Mona to be straight. It ends up being essential in her being able to take care of Barbara, and not to mention in her ability to run a successful business and protect the women in her bars. Could the Mona's bars have thrived back then, with an out lesbian at the helm? I have to think not. Now, this is mostly a conspiracy theory at this point, but could Mona have really been queer? Beth thinks it's possible. Um, Okay, so this is another interesting story. A few years ago, Beth went to visit an old friend of Mona's named Rhoda. Mona would have been a little older than her. And she's the woman who um, had a shop in North Beach, you know, creating custom leather outfits. And she sold to Ive Magnin and Neiman Marcus. And, you know, it was very high end. um, And she would make custom, you know, blazers or dresses or whatever for people. And so she had met my Aunt Mona and had um, also gone to the gone to Aunt Mona's bar and Mona asked her to make her something. And um, and Rhoda was not gay, 
goes to the bar and she's like, oh, this is interesting. Da, 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 da. And, and from Rhoda's account, when Aunt Mona was getting fitted, there was a little bit of flirting going on. So in Rhoda's mind, Rhoda was like, Mona definitely liked women, you know, Mona had girlfriends or whatever. And I was like, okay, well, then it was probably, I mean, not that the guys were total beards or whatever, but it was probably, who knows? I can't stress enough that there is no evidence to support this theory outside of Rhoda's memory. And there are so many reasons why there would be more evidence if it was true. But it's at least worth considering. I think she just liked everybody. You know, I don't know. I mean, I literally never, I did not have that conversation with her. And from what I understand, nobody in my family, like, got down to brass tacks about that. They knew Mona was different and never really talked about it. She was always considered, um, I wouldn't go so far as to say eccentric, but, you know, she was the the unusual relative. Like, everybody else is pretty, you know, Joe Basic or whatever. And Aunt Mona was, like, the exciting one. In this way, Beth has always felt a connection to Mona. Oh, you know, we're both kind of, you know, not exactly the oddballs, but the members of the family that really did something different with our lives. In fact, Beth sort of unwittingly followed Aunt Mona into the bar industry. She owns her own wine bar in Pacifica and was in the early stages of opening it back when she first found Mona's hotel room in 2009. You said you had already signed the lease yeah. here, so it was like you hadn't opened yet, but you were, right. you were finding that out. That's so cool. Yeah. A few years before that, Beth had moved to Pacifica outside of San Francisco. And I was here going, oh, my God, there's no place to go. You had to go, you know, to a restaurant and, at, you know, restaurants, you know, you're in your little restaurant booth and, you know, it's nothing like a coffee house or a bar where you're actually rubbing elbows with people. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to open a wine bar. Beth's wine bar called A Grape in the Fog opened in 2010. And it's actually where we met up with her for an interview. Hi. Beth? Beth, yeah. I'm Sarah. Nice so to meet nice you, fine. Nice to meet you. Rachel, nice to meet you. A Grape in the Fog is an adorably cozy spot with the look and feel of an elevated coffee shop. It's basically yeah. just one big room yeah. with a wacky back bar area. Over the years, Beth has found small ways to pay tribute to her great aunt Mona, like with a wine cocktail named after her during Pride Month. But it's amazing to think that Beth didn't even know about Mona's history while conceptualizing a grape in the fog. She couldn't have even imagined at the time how in line it all was with her aunt Mona's values. I was thinking particularly for women, you know, safe plate. Women are drawn to wine. Wine, you know, you're not knocking back shots or getting, you know, liquor is quicker, as they say. Wine takes time. So you can enjoy your conversation and just... And in, in, in a place like this, you know, you don't have people trying to, you know, hey, Lee, hey, baby, or whatever. And let me buy you drinks and or let me put something weird in your drink or whatever it might be. It was it's I wanted to create a safe and comfortable place to bring people together. And I saw the opportunity. There was nothing like it. Um, and I thought, you know, we're so close to wine. We're surrounded by wine country. How difficult can it be? So just scrapped it together. And, uh, and did it. And, and in the back of my mind, I was thinking of people like my Aunt Mona. These days, Aunt Mona is often on Beth's mind. Beth, 
You know, she just did what she wanted to do when she wanted to do it. And that's what I do. And like my Aunt Mona, I just was like, I'm going to do this. And I'd like to be a bit more, you know, be like Mona in that I don't think she was particularly apologetic about any of that. Cruising is independently reported and produced by a small but mighty team of three. Story producer and social media manager Rachel Karp, line producer and resident road trip driver Jen McGinnity, and story producer and audio engineer me, Sarah Gabrielli. Our theme song is by Joey Freeman. Thank you to our sponsors, Olivia Travel and Honda. You can find us at our website, cruisingpod.com, on social media at cruisingpod, and at patreon.com slash cruisingpod. Listen to Cruising wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, 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 oh,